Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Um, all right, this is a super exciting episode uh, of the show. Uh, my guests today are Corn Tucker and Peter Buck. Their band is Filthy Friends. They have a new album out that uh, really is incredible and has uh, blown me away. Both of them come from an incredible, each of them come from an incredible legacy of making um, music. Corn uh, is from Slater Kinney, and Peter uh, was in a band called R.E.M. And um, they've now joined, joined forces. So thank you both for, I know you're on a whirlwind New York thing, so thank you for taking the time. No problem. Yeah, thanks for having us. So I've been thinking a lot about this song by uh, Dawes, which is called um, May All Your Favorite Bands Stay Together. And uh, I don't know if you have, have heard, you ever hear that, that song? Yeah, I know the band, yeah. So the, the song is, is really, uh, it's the Taylor Goldsmith singing to this young person and hoping all their dreams will hold and that they grow up and be a good person. And the, the main benediction is may all your favorite bands stay together and, and kind of what that means. And I've been thinking about the way people connect to the bands that both of you made your names with. And, um, you know, my connection to your band, Peter. And I'm wondering if, to each of you, if you ever think about what your bands meant to people, like, and understand the hopes that they had or allow yourselves to think about it. Corin, you want to start? Um, I mean, I think that really to maintain your sanity, you don't really think about it that much because you don't really want to write with your audience in mind in order to really write a story that means something to you. You know what I mean? I, I think it's there. It's definitely there. And you, you know, it's, it's really meaningful. And that's why you started doing that in the first place. But I think you also have to, at some point, throw that out the window when you want to write a new record or do more songs in a way. Because if you're always thinking about like, what what do I mean to people? What does this mean? It it almost can be um, like too much information when you're trying to write something new. So that you can be free. Yeah. Yeah. I I yeah I understand that. But as you said, you started you started because these bands meant a lot to you. Yeah. Uh, because both I mean Peter, did you think about it ever? Did you connect to the, the especially you know um. I said this right before, but this is true. And uh, R.E.M. did save my life when I was 19 years old. You know, your music um, really and truly, like, is one of the reasons I became an artist with my life. You know, with no doubt about it. And so did it, did it land to you in a way that we're not just making music, but there's this community who has put on us all this other stuff? It means so much to them. It became evident really early that one of the things a band does is build a community. And that starts with the four guys of the band and then your manager and they all have ideally the same kind of ethical, moral, musical senses. The people you hire, then the people who come to the show. And, you know, after a while you realize, yeah, this is this is a world. We're presenting our world, you know, and it's not our world. It's the world these people are joining, you know. So there was that understanding. But the understanding is that everyone has their, their part to play in this, you know. Um, so, you know, for us, it was just like, oh, we're going to make another record and we hope people like it because we'll take them along with us as opposed to leave them behind. But I guess as you guys are embarking on this new thing, I wonder if you ever think about why certain bands connect in a certain way where they become more than just the music that they make, 
but they become um, some a kind of an emotional life raft for people. Which Slater Kinney, there's no doubt about it. When you guys, re- you know, came back to make the record, it it you saw the way people online, I I did reacted to it. It was like you gave them back their teenage years again or their college years again, in a really true way. So, have you thought about why that happens ever? I'm not exactly sure, you know? I mean, I think there is kind of like a a chemistry or a magic there in the band. I mean, I think with Slater Kinney, it's like, we just, we went for it, you know, like full stop. Like there was just like, there was no, there was no holding back. There was no, you know, saving a piece of yourself. You know what I mean? Like there was, there was, there was nothing, there was no holding us back. Right, we were for Slater Kenny. It was everything we wanted to do. We we were like really wanted to change everything about music and about the world. We were so young when we started. You know, it was like we were all in, all together. Yeah, that makes total sense. That level of sort of like commitment that your audience can feel. Yes, that's funny. When you're talking about it, it's like a Springsteen song, and I know you got to meet him, and I like it must have felt really surreal. Yeah, to you to see him and then get to talk to him and know yes. that he was listening. It was such an incredible moment. I'll never forget it. Peter was the person who brought me to the show. You call me like... To that afternoon. Yeah. Well, hey. I, I, I have friends who work with Bruce, and I've seen him a million times, and, and I love seeing him, but 20,000 people, you know, and it was... Uh, I just. Oh, so you didn't want to go, really? No, I mean, I was like, God, you know, I've, I've, I've literally seen him probably 40 times, so I just went, I don't know. And then all my friends went, you're not, you, you got tickets? You're not going to go? And so I said, well, okay, I'll go. And then I just called Corn and said, do you have any interest? And, and, you know, I think I got the last letter sent off, and there's this, yes, yes, I have interest. So we, we went, and, and I, you know, I don't, I don't know Bruce at all well, but um, I actually know Nils probably more than the other guys. Um, right. But, you know, we went backstage, and, and I, it must have been a really slow night because Bruce wanted to say hello. So, I mean, uh, come on. It's not, it's, he obviously res- just respects what you, what, what you both do, but I, I know the story is that he told you that he really liked your music. Well, I went in like, oh, my God, we get to meet him, you know, freaking out. And then Peter, you know, very politely introduced me. This is Corin Tucker of Slater Kenny. And he was like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Slater Kenny, you guys did the, uh, the Promised Land cover because we covered one right. of his songs. And he knew it. And I just awesome. was like, oh, this can't be happening. This is unreal. Yeah, Craig Finn talks about how, I don't, he's a buddy, and he talks about how in the wings, Bruce mentioning it, it just was, uh, yeah, life-changing. I guess the thing that I've been thinking about it, about you guys starting this band together, as I've been thinking about what's so hard at first, because I didn't really want to listen to the record at first, and I, 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 I realized part of it is these bands, as I'm sure the bands were for you, in a way when a band like R.E.M. breaks up or Slater Kinney takes a, a break, it's like a parent's divorce or something. And you don't really, to the, to the kids who are in the who's your the audience it's like well, wait why is dad gonna suddenly be with other people and it's weird and hard to like let's not push that metaphor much farther <laughs> <laughs> it's what it felt i think it is though what it feels like which is why this record with the fact that i really loved it um was i think really like a testimony to the, what you guys have uh accomplished and i guess the 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 last question about this this idea is um did you like being in bands that meant that could you did it 
Do you dig that kind of a relationship with the audience? I mean, I think there were, it was sort of essential in a way because I, for Slater Kinney, you know, we weren't making a ton of money. We weren't like, it wasn't a cushy ride really ever, you know, um, we were busting it from one show to the next, you know, um, for me, like trying to be a parent and be in a band, like it was really, really hard sometimes. And if the shows weren't great, if it didn't really mean something really special, I don't know that we would have made it through some of the times that we made it through. Yes. You know? Yeah, that makes total sense to me. And I mean, I've heard you talk about some of this before as the thing got bigger and bigger. And I, I think about that song, Bandwagon, and, you know, I, I promise you won't break the horse. And then in the end, I think maybe we did break the horse. Well, you know, I think we, we, we took it all the way to where it needed to go. And it would have been less true to who we were and, and as we were as a band if we decided, yeah, we'll stay together for the money and it's, it's nice being famous. You know, we never got to that place, but I think we would have got there. I think that it would have been, I don't want I didn't want to be a band that was just like, yeah, you know, yeah, we made some great records and, and now you could come buy the t-shirt, you know, I think it's better to walk away from it and it's all there. All the work that we've done exists, you know? Yes. On you, you went out with a bang and it was great. You know, you kept making records that mattered. I think the whole I, time. I love our last record and our last tour was as good as any tour we did and you know, the worry is, uh, you know, will we still have that the next record? Will we, will every year you get a little older, will the tour be, you know, when are we going to have to go out in wheelchairs? That kind of thing. Um, and it was, it was just the right time for all of us. So when I, when I started the podcast, the thing I said, like, I think on the first episode of it, it the, the original idea of it was to examine inflection points, like these key moments in, in, in people's lives. And I literally said the purpose is to ask a member of REM this one question. So okay. I'm, I got to ask you this question. I want to ask you too, which is I'm, I'm really fascinated by whether we recognize these moments in our lives when everything shifts, like when the whole world turns on its axis for you, if you recognize it. And I've always, I've wanted to know this since, uh, you know, I was literally 19. The first time that the four of you played together, you, Michael, Mike, and Bill, when in that first week or that first thing, did you have a sense that this was a different thing? Yeah, it was weird that it was immediately, it worked. I That's mean, what I wanted to, yeah. It worked really quickly. And, you know, we weren't great or anything, but we had a unique individual kind of feel immediately. But I will tell you that that was, we started rehearsing right around Christmas of 79 and did the first show April 5th of 1980. And right around April of 1981, all of a sudden, it just all fell completely into place. All like I, we wrote, you know, City Still and Radio for Europe, and most of the first record in about three weeks. And you know, we'd written good songs, and we, had, we were a good band and good performers. But all of a sudden, it felt like we knew who we were, and then it was just like filling in the blanks. Okay, we write song. Here we go. And, and you recognized it. Oh, I think that we were all we talked about it at the van. Like these new songs are just really something different. We're, we're kind of working in a different direction and. You know, it had been a year of writing songs and throwing them away. And they were good songs, you know. I mean, Just a Touch was one of the first ones. And Gardening at Night was an early one. But all of a sudden, we there was literally, you know, a month where we were home. And just every time we turned around, there was a new song that felt like, well, this is a real thing. This isn't good for us. This is really good. And you felt like uh, this is a lot of people listen to this are people who are artists or trying to want to be. They're not wannabes. I mean, people who are pursuing some sort of a career in this. 
So even though you were young and you were doing this, you knew you weren't delusional. You had the sense. And I want to ask you about when you first played with Carrie in one second. But like, you, you had the sense, like, oh, this is actually, this can work. Yeah, you know, we were, we were a really good, entertaining band. We're catchy. We're good on stage. The songs were, were good, you know. But all of a sudden, they started being, you know, like, I'd be impressed if someone else wrote that song. And it was about the interplay of all the four of us, how we, we, we played, how we wrote, how we, you know, how we thought. You know, we'd, we'd had more time to spend in, each, in the van, in each other's pockets, and talking about, you know, you know, aesthetic but ethical and moral and, you know, political ideas and all this stuff. You know, you got to remember, Michael was 19. Right. I think Mike was 20. I was 22, I think, when we started. So, you know, we were Crazy. literally not adults in some ways, you know getting to the point where all of a sudden this feels like a real thing. When you were talking about all that stuff, you, you were talking about that stuff knowing that that stuff was going to find its way into the entire mission of, of the whole endeavor, like into the songs, into the way you were going to conduct yeah. yourselves as a band. Yeah, when really early on, I kind of insisted that we share the publishing four ways and have everyone's name on it so that everyone makes the same amount of money and no one gets any more glory. Um, and you never replaced anyone with uh, Wolfgang Van Halen, so that's great, too. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, if he's available, sorry. I'm sure he's great. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. yeah, you know, that, the, there was a kind of conscious understanding of that we had, the, that we were picking our own road and that nobody could tell us anything. <laughs> that was the bad side. Nobody could tell us anything. But you know what? I don't think anyone had anything to tell us at that point. Yeah, who could have? You were inventing. I mean, you were inventing something. And you were in a band that had... Uh, a lo like a local following before Slater Kinney, right? Right. I was in a band called Heavens to Betsy. That mattered. To, uh -huh. That really mattered to people. Mm -hmm. But did you? So what happened when you, the fir you first played with Carrie? Did did we started playing almost as like a joke one day, just playing guitar with each other? And I was like, I just got a weird like spine tingling feeling. Of That's like, what I want to know. Really? Of like, oh, this is different. This is something really cool because our styles were immediately different you know she is like she's a totally noty like lead guitar player i'm like a real rhythm guitar player and singer you know i mean that's where i live right and so immediately we started playing stuff together and i was like oh this could really it's interesting you know i i wanted i want to see what what we could do with this but i immediately had a sense of like oh this is this is something really cool you know, and what, what were your ambitions then? Like, because you guys are doing this now and I'm, I'm sure they've shifted and I'm really interested in how we define success as we as as artists, how we keep redefining that mm -hmm. to ourselves. Yeah. But were did you back have like those Thunder Road kind of like <laughs> ambitions? Uh, did you want to be a rock star? Did you want to change music? But part of me did. A part of me did, to be really super honest. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I was such a kid. Like, you know, Peter was saying, I was like, I don't know, I was maybe 22 when Carrie and I started playing together. And I definitely remember, like, bragging to someone, like, yeah, I want to be a rock star, you know? But I don't think that I understood what that meant or, you know what I mean? Like, it just, I, I didn't have any clear goals of, like, where I was going with this. You know, I just... I, music really was so important to me and I just wanted to see if I could, if we could write a really good song, like one really great song. That's really what I wanted. And 
it took us a while to get there. Um, but I remember the moment when we wrote this song in Australia. This is a little, little while later. Um, but we went to Australia and we wrote our first batch of songs. And we wrote this song called Be Your Mama. And Carrie came up with this riff that was like, na 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 And we just like, kablooey. Like it just was like a powder keg going off. And we played this live show that literally was like electric. And I was like, oh, yes, that's it. This is the thing. Yeah, exactly. I and knew. But before that, had you told – because like it, it's always uh, fascinating like how people keep going before those moments. How we – with the stories we tell ourselves yeah. about where we're at yeah. in the thing. And by the way, I mean, it's funny. You're like gardening at night. I mean, that wasn't really good. I mean, gardening at night's great. <laughs> but but that we, you know, the songs that were before, I mean, I've heard like the club shows of the songs before that. And some of those songs weren't as great as the ones that you guys then wrote. But like something keeps you, something keeps you, you moving forward. And, you know, if you have the, the chemistry working together, you, you're just crazy not to pursue it. There's a story that I really love that, First time the Allman Brothers ever played together. And they jammed for like four hours. And to the end of their all of their lives, they talked about it. And they jammed. Dwayne put his guitar down and walked to the door. He goes, all right, anybody who don't want to be in my band has got to fight their way out. And, you know, I I kind of, I, I felt that way. I was like, yeah, you know what? This is the real thing. I can tell it's the real thing. I don't see bands doing what we're doing. And I wasn't about to let it, you know, slip by so that we could go on vacations or, and, you know, it, I was maybe resented in the band a little bit, and now everyone thanks me. But, you know, I made us work. Because you, know, you were the one who said, like, we're going to keep going on the road. 350 days a year. It's like, yeah, no, we're going to tour. Yeah, we're going to do another record right now. Here's a new song. Let's work on it. And, you know, everyone was really willing to put the work in, but there were times when I was definitely cracking the whip. And, and I was going, well, what do you want to do, be a hippie? I mean, we could take a year off and not make a record, and then what, work at Kinko's and do shows on the weekend? I don't want to do that. We've got something really special. Well, I always wanted to figure out which one of you brought the Adderall into the van, but now I know. Oh, yeah. Now the answer's clear how that got there. That's settled. Well. Another little <laughs> tiny piece of REM history now yeah. unearthed. Well, the thing is that we, we had a great chemistry that worked together, and one of my jobs is to just really push everyone in sometimes unpleasant way. Everyone had everyone is more talented than I am musically, I mean, as far as just playing abilities and stuff. Um, I'm a good songwriter, and I Yeah, I was going to really say, push, how's that but, true? Yeah. You know, I'm kind of a rhythm guitar player, but, you know... Seeing how good everyone is and how well we work together, I just wasn't about to, you know, because so many of my friends were like, you know, and bands I love, but local bands would go like, oh, we just want to play New York. What's the point of playing Ohio? And it's like, hey, there's teenagers in Ohio and they need saving, you know, because it was the Reagan era and we felt like it was, we're, it's a war out there and we're going to win our little part of it. And how many people have you met with me that say, I met you when I was 14? There must be 20 of them in Portland. Chris Lazarenko. Yeah. Tucker, you know, all these yeah. people who, and we make a point, writing letters to kids, hanging out with them, because I just felt like Reagan era, man, that was just, it was like Nixon. Well, that except, seemed like a dark era. Well, before, well I mean, I, I was a teenager, you know, I was a teenager then, that yeah. seemed dark, I mean, compared to this, that we just glory days. We just, we just lived, <laughs> we're living through now, I mean, holy yeah. fuck, well, you're like Reagan, I would, I mean, I gotta how say, much would you give of your fortune to have Reagan instead I kind of miss George W. Bush. I mean, what, what an elegant, yeah, what an elegant was dad. No, but seriously, his dad, you would take his dad now. If, if I said, this guy could leave tomorrow, but you have to take Bush Sr. in his prime for the next 10 years. He was, he was an honorable Done. man. I didn't disagree with Done. him. Done. You'd take him. Over Trump? Yeah, me too, yeah. in a second. In a heartbeat. I'm saying I'd, for 10 years. Like, yeah. That's fine. My kids could would be... 
Like, they'll be yeah. all right. Yes. It'll all be okay for me. But yeah, you had a mission. I mean, that's the thing, right? A mission beyond just... Yeah, I don't think, you know, when you're 15 that you really think about that. Um, you know, I think when I was 15, I probably wanted to have a shag haircut and play really fast guitar. You know? Sure, yes. Um, but, but you were you were on a mission, yeah. and we all felt that. Well, it was, you know, we were playing to, to people, little ki- kids, you know, 21-year-olds. We were 23, you know. But it definitely felt, we talked to all these kids from these little towns and even big cities. They go, man, no one's ever come through here. And how are you doing this? And how do you make your own record? And, you know, I mean, Matthew Sweet, sweet. I met him when he was 15. And he had our single. And he's like, God, I really want to see the show. And I went, you know, there's a patio behind the place. I'll just boost you over the fence. Just don't drink beer. I don't want your mom calling and trying to find us because I got their kid drunk. And he, he was good as his word. He didn't get drunk. And he moved to Athens and he formed a band. I saw him play two weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a way, you guys are like Velvet Underground that actually sold records. You're, you know, because of what R.E.M. fans in the first four, you know, on Chronic Town and then the next three records before you guys became the biggest band in the world. I mean, what was the first time, as I'm so interested in how this came together, do you remember when you first heard R.E.M.? I, I remember my dad brought Murmur home into the house and he was like, you have to hear this record. And that's super cool. I just thought it was the most amazing thing I'd ever heard, you know, right away. Yeah, absolutely. I was like, this were you like in your, were you like 10? I was 10. Yeah. I was like, this is really, really cool. And the songwriting was really immediate. Guitar sound was super interesting. And yeah, I was, I was a fan right away. Not just of the band though, but the ethos that they were bringing was so different than anything else in 1982, I mean, you know, like you said, it was the Reagan era, and at that time, it seemed really bleak. You know, it seemed really like I was a kid trying to figure out, like, you know, are there any good grown-ups? Are there any good grown-ups? Answer is no. <laughs> there never have been. <laughs> you know, when I was young, I used to think older people were crazy, and now that I'm old, I think I was totally right. Older people are really weird. Yeah. I've earned it, though. You've earned being as strange as you want to be. Yeah. Sure. No doubt about it. And uh, and do you remember when you first heard her? Yeah, absolutely. It was the day Princess Diana died. I just happened to know because everyone called me. I, I was like, who is she? I, I wasn't didn't keep up with the royal family. but Yeah, were, I do think your version of Candle in the Wind was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but they were, really pl- they were playing um, the local club in Seattle. I went down and it was, you know, it was probably the last, like, I hate to use the word movement, but they were like the greatest band and the audience kind of reflected what was coming off the stage, you know, like they were well-dressed. I don't mean that in a bought expensive clothes way, but you know, thought was put into who we are as a group and how we relate to each other. That was important. Then the band totally rocked and were really great. And I just went, Whoa, you know that. And I was lucky. I was living in Seattle at the time that all the stuff from, you know, Olympia was coming down and, you know, I got to see a lot of that stuff really firsthand, which, um, was probably the last movement in rock and roll that really, really excited me. You know, the the take control of it. You know, the young women in charge. You know, I was one of the guys who did go to the back of the room when Bikini Kill told us to. You know, and didn't feel bad about it. I was like, yeah, that's right. I'm down with that. You know. So you recognized you recognized something kindred in a way, and what Absolutely. they were doing. You know, something I, new and different, but kindred. I well, I you know, I saw them, and I just this reminds me a lot of the way we presented and felt about things and you know then i had to go explore gosh you only have one record out then was it two two yeah i think i only had the one and so 
then it was a matter of seeing them several times and you know and it was like like all great bands you kind of get sucked into this world that's a little different from yours and it's not that different from my world in some ways because i you know i believe in all the tenets of feminism and for years i've said you know just think if you know women had played guitar in 1956 and think of all the you know female Jimi hendrixes and jeff becks we would have had or you know but but it also, I mean, the great thing is it wasn't just like a didactic night at the it club. You guys really played. Like, I remember, because I was in, that, in the music business then and very burnt on on the business of it, and it, I hated everything. And that's one of the reasons I had to get out of it, because music was everything to me. And then when you're an A&R person, you know, you just, it becomes this other thing. And um, But I would see the way that certain people younger than I am, I'm like seven years older than you, and I younger than than I, I was would talk about your band and it was the way I talked about those bands and you were already signed but I remember on Houston Street during a CMJ one year like in 95 or 6 mm. or something seeing you and realizing that's the real thing like it's it was manifest to me did you go say hi yeah we talked a little bit um you did know you, I was just like god this is great I love you guys you know and it was it just you know we didn't we didn't exchange phone numbers or anything like that but um you know, it was, it was, I just want to say, hey, you know, that, that really got through to me, you know, because I, maybe I'm not necessarily the target audience. I'm a little older and, you know, whatever, but, and, you know, at that point really successful and, you know, maybe wouldn't, but I just wanted to say, hey, you know what, this had real meaning to me. It wasn't like, hey, that was cool. It was, this has meaning to me. I loved yeah, it. That's terrific. You yeah. Know? And so. And what, do you remember this? Well, <laughs> so what happened was, is I think that coming off the stage Carrie was walking off the stage and that was the person that Peter talked to and I think he said something you know like that was really great you know really special or whatever and but I think you said something like but yeah you probably don't care what I think or whatever and she was like yeah I don't that's perfect yeah you know it was exactly what she should have said it was it was fun. I laughed at the time um um, but what was your? I mean, did you know that the, he was in the club? No. Well, I didn't, no, I knew he was in when the you club. When you were on stage, but you I, knew. I didn't witness this interaction until later. She, she also knew I was the biggest. She REM made it fan sound like ever. A, like right, you're was, like me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I can't speak that he's in the room. Like my tongue is like wrapped around in a knot, right? So she comes back later and she tells me what she said, and I just am like, you did what? It was not rude at all, and I think she tried to get your goat more than she tried she to did. get mine. Um, she did. It's the perfect response, though. Yeah, yeah. Exactly what someone but should say, funny... especially like the her hero, like the other person's hero. It's great. But then one of the things that's weird that ties us together is that her husband, Lance Bangs, uh, started working for REM. I met him when he was 19 and started doing films for REM like in the early 90s. So we've kind of been, we keep passing like, you know, here and there, and and Lance, the very last thing REM did in 2010, Lance filmed it. So, so we, would you be around? Like, were you we, around we, then? We kind of say hello, but we didn't really know each other. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, he had made a video. I mean, he like before I met him, he was in Athens. He was making videos for REM, and in Olympia, he was the REM guy. So when Perfect. we started we started dating and she's like and it was like oh she's dating that rem guy mm -hmm. you know oh i had a podcast guest who's like super famous and successful who got his start in the world by being the dp the cinematographer on the one i love which is alton brown do you know 
Do you know that he? I know who he is. Do you know that Alton was the cinematographer? He shot the one I love video. Oh my I, god! I, I'm sure I remember the guy. There's photos of that thing. I remember, but you know that was a million years ago. Yeah, he's like um, uh, a huge Food Network guy, like the, one of the most popular people who talks about food in the whole world. I mean, he's got millions really? and millions of Does followers. Does he have a show where we he's love like, his yeah, show? He his show's called Good Eats. Yeah, what's it called? His show Good Eats, and mm-hmm. he he's a, a huge he's um like food science guy. He figures out the, and he directed his show. It's not like any other food show. And it's been on for 15 years. And I mean, he's got house upon, he's a, an enormously so successful as only someone with syndicated television shows can be. Yeah. Like really. And um, told me this whole story of uh, R.E.M. changed his life. Wow. He was a d- cinematographer. He was, and, and finding his way and, and had put himself at the production house that made that video six months before thinking that an REM video would come through. Like, he's a smart guy who yeah. calculated his way. And that, like, was his launching pad to learn how to do that. He, it's a, like, a little-known... You like his show. I love his show. That's perfect. <laughs> My daughter is crazy about his show. Right. Well, <laughs> you should invite him. He would definitely come out if you guys played, <sighs> like, Atlanta. Fun. Yeah. Have you played Atlanta? Are we you going? going? We've got we to gotta play the South. Yeah. We haven't done it yet. Yeah. If you play Atlanta... you. Like invite Alton. I'm telling you, invite uh, <laughs> Alton Brown. So how did this happen? Like that you guys came together to do this, and and in listening to the record, it seems like. So I know the solo records and all the stuff that y- you've made, but this feels so proper to me. Like nobody's fucking around. This feels like it really matters. Yeah. Well, I, I say this a lot, and the corn always laughs, but it's true. I'm a really intense person, and she's a really intense person. You know, people go, oh, what about this project? And I always say, it's it's not a fucking project. It doesn't feel like a project. This is my life. When I'm doing this, I work just as hard doing this as I do anything else. And I stay just, I'm sure that somewhere there's like a guy who defuses bombs or walks a tightrope over Niagara Falls. It's a little more focused than I am. But there aren't many. And I'm, you know, so when I focus on something, I'm really serious about it. That doesn't mean I can't have fun doing it or whatever, but I'm serious. And, you know, I just have to restrain myself from texting her at 2 in the morning going, hey, by the way, you know. Yeah, but, but you, I believe that you're serious about any endeavor, but, you know, you made your solo records hard for people to get. Yeah, you know. It's, and and there, there were things where, where it seemed like you were cared about making the music. Um, but that there was a measure of not being ready to put the pedal to the metal and go like, I'm fucking doing this. And when I listen to this album, I really feel like there are riffs on this record that are from like, could have been outtakes from Life Switch Pageant. There are arpeggiated things that could have been from the first three records. There's stuff that you guys do that's entirely new. But more than that, I feel that sense of purpose and like, not just because the lyrics, not just because you're singing about stuff that really matters in the world right now, but because it feels like there's a spark. And I, so I, it made me want to understand what this, how this came to be. Well, after she sang on my first solo record, it just, it seemed to work really well, really quickly. And I kind of just suggested, well, you know, why don't we see what writing songs is like? Because really, to me, I'm a songwriter. You could, I'm, my guitar playing is probably the fifth good thing I do as far as music goes. I'm a songwriter, band leader, you know, I'm probably better at getting the hotel room schedules together than I am playing guitar, you know? But if the songwriting is that, just let's see how that works. And I have friends that I've tried to write songs with and we just can't really, but we just started throwing things around and within a couple of weeks we had just a, a really strong handful of songs. So did you, and you, you called Corn? Is that how this yeah. 
Yeah. And, and you said, let's write some songs? Well, we, I asked her when she He said, in. let's make a record. Yeah. I, where were you? Say, so what, no, can you tell, where were you? Like, what was your deal? <laughs> I was on the phone. He's like, hey, this is Peter Buck. Yeah, I think the song that you did on my solo record turned out really well. Yeah, I was thinking we should write a record. Uh, yeah, I, I think it'd be really cool. You know, let's let's see what happens. And I'm like, you know, like white as a sheet, like just sweating. <laughs> no, were you like, was it an intense phone call to yeah. get? Yes. Yeah, of course. Right, right because yeah. this like musical hero. Right. So ha- do you tell yourself at a certain point, because I've had to do this and work with a lot of my heroes. I directed Michael Douglas in a movie once and like having to give Michael Douglas a note mm. at first that was like, oh, I have to forget. So did you say to yourself, okay, now I have to walk in and I have to, look, I'm an equal, I'm, I'm who I am. And I have to now like be able to be like, oh dude, go to the fifth. Like, you know, how did you think about it? Or did it just happen? It, you know, it just, it just kind of went from there. Like I just had to put that part of my brain away. And Consciously? Be like, yeah. And he'd be like, okay, put that part of your brain away and say, first of all, say yes. Good. Like, don't chicken out. And second of all, you know, say that you want, like, I, you know, I was like, yeah, I, but I want to do it, but I want to write songs with you. Because he had written a song for the solo album. He wrote the whole thing, right? He wrote all the lyrics. And I was like, we're going to write together. You know, I want to write the lyrics. I want to work together. You said that right on that first call, or did you think about it? I think that, well, I seem to remember saying that we should write songs together because yeah. I don't want to, I don't really want to be. The only reason that I sang is because I didn't have anyone else to sing, and the only reason I wrote lyrics is because I want. If I'm going to sing them, I should probably write them. But I did. I never really felt like I should be the front person in a band, and you know, if I, collaboration is really important to me, I really like writing songs. I like writing with other people, and you know, you want it to represent everyone in the band, and you know, you want the singer to be singing stuff that's meaningful. You know, and so how did it? What happened from there? I, like just to go a little bit granular for a second. Did you say we're going to have a window, like an old-fashioned, like the way, like we're going to get in a room and just write a record? I remember talking about that and being like, well, I want to get in a room. And that's the way As opposed I, to just sending stuff back and forth. Yeah. You were like, let's get in a room together? Mm-hmm. And you'd come in your head. You were like, we're really going to go do this now. Yeah. And what'd you do? Where'd you get in a, Like, what happened? Where'd I had you write a bunch it? A little piece of music. She had some stuff. We just started throwing them together, and with she was humming and singing words and making notes. You know, the first couple times we probably had six songs. You know, and she'd come back and it'd be really close, and then she'd kind of hesitantly go, "Well, maybe the, the bridge." I go, "Let's just throw the bridge away and start over." Right. I think that was kind of a relief to you to know that. You know, I mean, I write stuff and, it, and I put it together, but I, you know, it could all. It, I was in a band with Michael Stipe, and my feeling is like my job is to make sure that he sings the stuff he wants to sing at the right place. You know. So it's not about my guitar playing or, you know, if, if he wants to cut the bridge out, then we cut the bridge out. But yeah, but you, you have to take pains, I imagine, when you're in collaborating to make sure people know they can tell you, right? Because it's like that Woody Guthrie, you know, that Bob Dylan wrote that poem about um, in the lyric book uh, about visiting Woody Guthrie and how Woody Guthrie kind of debased himself as a way to show him that he's human. Because you're, it's very difficult, I, I, I would think, to tell Peter Buck, like, I don't love that. Um, that riff I like that one better uh, so I can Im- imagine like that people are deferential to you all the time which must be an odd way to go through life yeah it, I think this is a weird world anyway so the the way the place I live in it you know every now and again you and I will sit in the van and just look at each other and go, oh, 
I don't know what the hell this day is all about. But so that's what my life is like. I'm confused. It's not my world. We had to do some other interview today where the, the guy was asking like yay or nay on things. I'm like, I don't know, man. I mean, I never heard this stuff. It's not my world. But, you know, that said, I, I really believe in the functionality of groups, you know, that not large groups maybe, but, you know, groups of people can really make a difference in a way that is stronger than one person. You know, it'd be great to be Nelson Mandela or Jimi Hendrix or something that, you know, carries it all within him. But I don't, I've never felt like I was that person. That I, you know, I like collaboration. I like to find people that I respect. And it has to be, again, back to the ethical, moral, you know, I don't, I wouldn't write songs with a Trump supporter. You wouldn't you know? write songs with Ted Nugent? No, I mean, he's ever written a good song anyway? No, but, um, Although I kind of like Scat, Cat, Cat, Cat Scratch Fever is a really good riff. I mean, I, it's just a good riff, man. I, I could play that riff, you know. So, yeah. I, you know, nothing but, against the guy. But no, we, you know. That, no, you could say, I think it's fair to say um, some good riffs, we have a lot against him. Like, I have a lot against the guy. I think he wrote, I was talking about this about James Woods, the actor with Pendulette, who I, who I, and I were going back and forth. He, uh, like, James Woods is a horrible asshole, obviously, who supports Trump and says terrible things about women and minorities. He's a talented actor. I don't think us saying he's not a talented actor makes our point stronger. I think it weakens our point. Mm -hmm. It's like, he's a talented actor. He's a smart person. He's incredibly misguided, a racist, and probably a horrible human. And that's, I think that's fair. I would just, Ted Nugent's well, that not as... fair to me. <laughs> What'd you say? That sounds fair to me. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like, you know, I think probably Ted Nugent's worse because he's basically written two decent riffs and he married a 16-year-old or something. So I, I think I do have a lot of problems. And if you're angry and want to send me Ted Nugent letters... That's fucking fine. Um, so you, you you did this like at your home studio or where? Yeah, just my basement. Yeah. And and you knew, did you come back after that first writing session and think, oh, this is, we're going to do this. This is good. I did. I mean, it was still like, I wasn't sure what was going to happen entirely. You know, like I wanted to write some songs um, I don't know. It maybe took a couple songs before I f felt like I got my footing, you know? Like it was as much you as... Yeah. Your... Well, collaboration like that's hard. Yeah. Where you're not starting... You're, he's putting you on equal footing there, mm -hmm. but obviously you grow up listening to Peter. It's a different kind of thing and then but you as an artist you're you're you are i mean every record you've ever made when you're singing it's clear your point of view is so strong so it yeah. wouldn't work if you weren't right. coming from that place right so you, did you talk to your husband about it to your friends i'm, I'm always interested in creative flow it's like a an, an, uh, thing i think about a lot because i was a blocked writer till i was 30 so like how did you do you journal like what do you do to get yourself aware of where you are um I just, I don't. I just try different things until I feel like I have something that I write. I mean, I really write the melody first. Oh, really? Yeah. So I, you know, if we have a song, I'm like humming things and thinking about things and trying to find like a foothold in the song, you know. And then once I have the melody, then I start thinking about a story. Like, what is this? What's the story here? What is the song? What is the song about? And then you felt, it, uh, okay, I'm going to really insert my mm -hmm. point of view. And then Peter was welcoming to that. And that's when you knew, okay, this works. And then, and then you recognized the songs were like good. Yeah. Once we had, um, 
like a couple songs that I was like, oh, this actually is, I, this, I think this is a good song. You know, a couple of those. I was like, oh, okay. I can I can see this is, is this seems to be working, you know? And did you play them for anybody? Any friends? Anyone in your life? Um, not really. So it was just the two of you in this like bubble yeah. of creativity. Yeah, you know, we got, I think we got six or eight songs into this thing and I was making some solo record and I just said, well, you know, I booked two days. Why don't you come in the afternoon and we'll just record three songs and see how that goes. And we did that like five times and then we had a record. Great. So, you know, we probably spent four days recording the record. And, you know, next time we'll spend even longer. But, um, you know, maybe a little bit more like all in one go. But it just seemed crazy to go in and record, you know, for weeks on end or even a week on end. Whereas, you know, if we get in and out and feel how it goes, and it was a little impromptu, you know. Yeah, I know that you've said you don't like the long, incredibly long recording sessions and time spent in between. I'm and sure it works for some people. You broke up my favorite band ever because of that. But, <laughs> um, but, but, like, do you can can you recognize that some like automatic for the people? It's the 30th anniversary of that of, of that record. Can you recognize that sometimes that does work? Yeah, that wasn't. It wasn't a super, super long process. I mean, immediately after that, they all got really long. And then near the very end, they got shorter again. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Because um, there can be a value in each thing. Uh, it create, right? Each thing needs to... I'm asking, really. Don't you think... Or do you think it's always better for it to be more spontaneous, quicker? That's just the thing that, like... I think of all the records of my life I've loved, and I can't think of any that were labored over over long long stretches i mean what the white album probably took longer than any other record that i i love and they, they did 40 songs so of course it should take a while you know i mean right i you know it's funny i was, I was listening to car wheels on a gravel road the lucinda williams yeah. and i was talking to chloe and i went how did how did this turn out to be a great record because she recorded it and threw it away three times that is the kiss of death and yet it's a great spontaneous Cool sounding record. That's about the only one I could think of that where they it was labored over. I think uh, the one that came to mind. I don't even know if you like is what, like whatever. Amy Mann's whatever. It took a really long time, and I think that's oh I didn't know maybe her know. best record, and that took until this new one. That took a very long time. I John think, Bryan takes forever. I mean, yeah, he takes a very I think very long to, time to, to spend stuff. a long time and have it be worthwhile. You have to have a focused endpoint vision, and be you know you're not. Like, for me, it's kind of like, okay, if this song doesn't work, let's not spend a week on it. Let's just throw it away and, and go on to the next song. And so, you know, if I just if I were to say, okay, these 10 songs are going on the record, we've got to make them right, maybe that would be the way to do it. But, you know... That's that's what makes you feel creatively alive. Yeah, you know... To do it in this kind of a... Uh, where the whole thing feels like it's the passion of the thing yeah, I mean, bursting we've, forth. We've got, like, 20 new songs. I don't know if they're all going to make the record, but the ones that are floating to the surface seem to be the ones that feel real good and you know we'll spend more time on them because we kind of have a little more focus on where we're going but i still you know some, some of these songs i really like is the samba song gonna make it i don't know you know so you're writing as you go now as you're yeah we, we did seven new songs last night awesome that's really great and so you recorded these songs you, you did the thing and both decided to commit to not just doing an album, but to, how did you decide, okay, we're, this is really a band, we're really going to go tour it and do it? Well, I think that um, once we had all of the songs finished, we were like, oh, this is, this is like a real record, you know? Um, and then it was a matter of like, 
how do we do this now in, you know, 2013 or whatever, when we were like finishing 2014, you know? Oh, so this, this record's like, th- you recorded this two and a half or three years ago? Yeah. I think we mixed it two years ago. We finished the mix two years ago, but we were, it takes But not long- the Trump song. You added the Trump song. No, that was written a long time ago. It wasn't about Trump. Right. It was written before. And then you just said to Dave Eggers, here, take it. It's, yeah. It could be one of these. Yeah. So why the records? Why didn't? Why did it take two years, especially now in this day and age, to put the record out? Well, if we talked about whether we just wanted to put it ourselves and put it up on the internet on Tuesday, you know, and my manager just looked at me. And you, were, we were talking together with my manager. He goes, um, "You're crazy. Right. Someone will put this thing out, and you don't want to have to be doing ad mats and and." you know all that kind of stuff no. and i kind of went well that makes sense you know we were on kill rock stars so it's not as if we signed to some major corporate international but because of that they move kind of slow we had finished and i guess this later album came out in yeah. 2014 that, yes. that started so you decided yeah. you were going to do that yes. first because uh-huh. you were already doing you were yeah. al- already in and that takes precedence you know that's that's it does it takes precedence um there's plenty of space in between but you know right when we were getting to the point when I didn't know Slater Kenny was getting back together. So right when I heard that that was happening, it, it, it would seem like, okay, then we're going to put this on hold for a while, which is fine. You know, it's, I wasn't in some huge rush about it. Because, yeah, there's nothing that feels side project-like about this album. It feels like it's its own. I mean, that thing when you have kids and you can love them all. This really does feel like another kid when you yeah. listen to it. Um, it's got a unity of tone, a unity of voice. There's a voice that happens when the two of you are playing and writing together that makes it feel really like an album that lives. So I get why you would try to carve the space for it. And and so then you decided, okay, we're going to put it out properly and we're going to promote it and really like live it. Yeah, given that, you know, the where our lives are, we're not going to get in the van for six months or even, you know, a month. But... You know, we've we've been playing on and off for three years now, um, and finding ways to do it. You know, it's like we always keep saying, it, it's it's a new world. You know, in the promoting of the records, the way the records are sent out. I mean, I haven't done a single print <laughs> ad or you know interview for this whole thing. It's all podcasts or websites or you know, yes. and that's an entirely ex- different. Thing. That, that didn't exist when I was you know. Even when we were getting ready to retire, it barely existed. Well, it was like college radio. I mean, there was college radio yeah. interviews or something like that. Maybe this is sort of re- replaces that. When, when you're, uh, I want to ask both of you this question too. Um, do you have some sort of um, a ritual or way you live your life to keep yourself in a creative place, to keep yourself, you've been doing this for such a long time. Do you, do you uh, have a specific time in your life when you're writing? Do you like, journal like what what is it that allows you to stay and get yourself and stay in a state of flow doing creative stuff it's like a marathon you know you can't stay in bed for weeks getting ready for a marathon i mean you do it every single day and you write really crappy songs and ideally you know the difference between the good and the bad ones but you know i i write every day i have i have 50 songs i could i could whip out now and i know some of them aren't very good you know and you so, write every day yeah, That's if I've got huge. a guitar nearby, I've, and I usually take my notebook with me, and, you know, I mean, I was playing stuff at the radio station just now, a little thing that I kind of liked, and, you know, maybe I'll go back to my room and goof around with it a little bit. 
And so you'll, do you do that in the morning usually? You know, a great time for me is like two, three, four in the morning. Uh, so late. Yeah, you know, the, the day's done. You're maybe a little tired. I love storms are great, you know, weird weather patterns. Um, and then I just kind of wander around like a ghost and play. And you're kind of not necessarily focused. And sometimes things will crop up that wouldn't in a rational sense. Late, because the gu- your guard's down and like, like the late, perfectionism you know, is down and all that stuff. Uh, you know, any time works if I'm around an instrument. But I... I seem to feel like a good portion of what I've written in my life occurs way after midnight. And what about you? I I mean, now that I'm a parent, I usually try and get one kid to bed and then go and get on um, my headphones and, and try and write vocals at night. I mean, I'm you know, that's usually when things happen in terms of writing, too. Do you do something every day? I try to do it three times a week. I wish I could say that I do it every day, but I think three times a week is good. You actually set your set up like, I'm going to now turn, turn the world off yep. and do this thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think any kind of a rhythm like the gym or something. Yeah. One thing I, I did notice listening to the record is that neither of you seem to be like running from your legacy on, on the album. As I said, like I do hear... It does sound like what someone might imagine a collaboration of the two of you would be. And uh, other records that you've made haven't felt like that necessarily. You haven't done the arpeggiated thing. You haven't, like, uh, sometimes, but these riffs, it feels like you both just decided not to give a fuck about that. And I'm wondering if it was conscious, like, if you talked about the meaning of the Sonics beyond just how they made the songs work, like... Because um, I looked at people writing about this record, and um, I listened to it before I read anything, and I had this thought, and then I saw people writing about it, and I so I think there's validity to it. I didn't have any conscious thought about where I was going, you know. But so much of my songwriting is tied up with my guitar playing, you know, that it's riffs and chord changes and you know melodies and rhythms, and that's kind of who I am. But I try to break away from that, you know, but. It's also there, and if you write something you think is really cool, I don't, don't really worry about but it. But it seemed like you lean into it here more than on like some of the other records well, you've done. My solo records, I really didn't want to make an REM record with a really bad vocalist, you know? So sure. That, so I was just going solely somewhere else with that. Right, but here you were, because there are, here it feels like you wrote those riffs, and then also it seems like you didn't run from melodies that could have shown up on Reckoning. And certain, like, I That's really, my favorite R.E.M. record. <laughs> right. Well, you hear it. I didn't know that, but I hear it in the record. Yeah. I hear you singing melodies like Mills or Stipe would have written in those spots. Yeah. So that was not, if not conscious, you were aware of it. It was, I mean, I just think it's there. Like I said, that I started listening to them when I was 10. Yeah. It's there. But it's, yeah, it's really in there. But you don't notice it. Like to you, that's not clear in the way that it is to out, like to people who know those records in a different I don't, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, it's, to me, it's all a continuum. <laughs> I, 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 you know, it's like I worry about, oh, have I written this before? Or does, are these chord changes familiar? But then, you know, I mean, the Ramones did amazing things with the, you know, pretty limited sonic, you know, palette. Yeah. And oh, and oh I think it's a, they're the greatest a feature, not a bug. But like, yeah. no, I think it's a great thing. Yeah. 
but I just didn't know what your level of sort of awareness, uh, like choice. It feels like a choice is when you're, it was clearly a choice for you, Corn. You knew what the. I was just like, I just was, yeah, I mean, I felt like, yeah, I've been thrown in the deep end here and I got to swim. That's how I felt. <laughs> yes. Okay. Lastly, um, you know, both of you did change music and that's a rare thing. Um, did, and it's harder to do that now. And it doesn't even seem like that's the game that you're in with this record. It just feels like you're in it to make something great. Do, do you, do you miss like when you were fighting that battle in a way? Or are, do you feel like you've put your time in on the, on that battlefield? Um, I think that, I don't know. I feel like for me, things are different now in 2017. There are so many more women playing music and, you know, I feel like there's so much more respect and understanding, um, um, for women, you know, being treated equally and respected and everything, you know? So, um, I'm happy about that, but I also feel like, you know, I'll always be a feminist and I'll always, you know, have something to say. And that's always just, just a part of who I am and what I bring. Yes, that makes total sense. And do you think about the weight of the legacy when you're doing this or you don't? You're only as good as your last record, you know? And I'm proud of my work and, and knowledge that both of our bands came along and were of the moment in a way that, you know, you can't really do that twice. Nobody does it twice. Paul McCartney didn't get to do it twice. Even Dylan didn't get to do it twice. I mean, his period where he was in that space, he's a great artist before, great artist afterward, but you only get that four or five years where everything is going just like that. And then after that, you, you just, you try to do as great work as you can and key, imbue it with as much meaning as possible. You know, I don't expect 20 year old kids to look at me and go, yeah, that's the way I want to live my life. It just, it's not going to happen. Right. Well, um, thank you both so much. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, on this whirlwind. Everyone should listen to Filthy Friends. It's um, really worth your time. It's uh, it's a great album and a great album that you guys made a great album in 2017. I mean, I like I get that you made it before. It yeah. makes more sense to me than that you made it during the swirl of yeah. this world. But um, we need it now. So thanks for doing it. Thank you. Thank you. All right, you can find me um, at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. Uh, are you on? You're not. Are you on social media at all, Peter? Anti-social media. Fuck social media. No. On we're on we're on the Filthy Friends uh, Twitter and we have Instagram and we have. Facebook and all that. So you can find them there. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Bye.